The events we're thinking about uh, this morning in this passage happened perhaps four or five years or so after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The end of the, the Gospels, or the beginning of Acts, this, this account of the early church. The last thing Jesus told his followers, we call them disciples, the last thing he told them was that they should uh, begin in Jerusalem, where they were, uh, and then in Judea, the surrounding countryside, and then in Samaria, in the neighbouring country, their enemies, and then ultimately in all the world, they should go and they should tell the good news about him. He, they should make disciples. And as we break into Acts at this point, so far, uh, the good news began in Jerusalem, uh, went into Judea, and we read there the account of the good news going into Samaria, but it has not yet gone out to the farthest parts of the world. So I want to introduce you to a chap, um, the man who features in our uh, story here. He lives on the banks of the river Nile in a royal city called Moroe, what we, in what we now call uh, Sudan, but the capital of, of the Nubian Empire. It's a magnificent place with uh, ornate palaces and, and, and royal pyramids where uh, the, the queens were buried. Um, the queen's name is given as Candace. It's not actually her name any more than Pharaoh is the name of the Egyptian kings. It's, it's the royal title, if you like. Uh, he's called an Ethiopian, but he isn't from what you think of as Ethiopia. It's a general term that's applied to anyone living in kind of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, he's probably, as I say, living in, in Sudan. And this man is a powerful man. He's an important man. He's a successful guy. He is in charge of the treasury. He's, he's the chancellor of the exchequer. It's not come without its cost. Probably as a child, he was dedicated to service in the royal court by being made a eunuch, by being emasculated. And as he lives there, presumably, um, he's heard stories that have passed down through the centuries how the mighty Egyptian pharaoh and his armies were brought low by the Hebrew God as he rescued them, as he brought them out of slavery and delivered them from genocide. Perhaps this man had heard accounts of the Queen of Sheba going up to visit Solomon and her wonder at the wisdom that only God can give, and the temple that had been built in honour of God. And uh, the more he hears and the more he thinks, there's an increasing sense in this eunuch that this God is, is the God of gods. That he's the God that this man must deal with. There's a, a sense of needing to meet with this God. We sang, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you. It's taken, the words are taken from a psalm, but it's something perhaps that this man is beginning to feel. This Ethiopian eunuch. I must meet with this God. I must worship him. So he goes off to his boss, the queen. Uh, he arranges a, a leave of absence. And he's going to Jerusalem. He's going 
longing for the presence of the living God. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to identify with the people of God as they gather there. He's going to go to the temple and he's going to worship God. He sets out. He's an important man, so we can presume he takes his kind of retinue with him. He's got some servants. He's got uh, some bodyguards with him. He's probably going to carry out some diplomatic business en route, I suppose. It is a 1,500-mile journey that he makes by chariot. That's going to be at least a kind of six-week journey, ignoring the kind of stops and, and, and diversions he might take along the way. So finally, after a long time, weary from the road, and, 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 and hot and smelly and dusty from the traveling. At last, he spots in the distance the city of Jerusalem. There's his walls, and inside the walls, you can see the temple. It was overlaid with gold. It would have been stunning just to see the temple of God, the symbol of God's presence on earth. The one place in all the world where you can go and meet God. And he arrives. Uh, You can imagine his excitement, the anticipation, all this journey, all this effort, all this expense has been worthwhile. He is coming into the presence of God. He's going to join with the people of God. He's coming to the place where you can encounter God. There is something admirable about the eunuch, isn't there? Maybe you can relate to that. That sense of, of longing, of desperate desire to see God, to worship Him, to find significance, to enter something into something bigger and greater than yourself, to find God, to meet Him, the source of eternal meaning, the God you were made to know. While he was on the journey, a man called Stephen, I mentioned him earlier, He came to the temple too. He'd been dragged there by an angry mob. Uh, And and when the religious rulers challenge him about what he's doing and saying, he explains that God isn't confined to a temple, to a holy place, to a special city. He reminds the religious rulers that God fills the universe. That even in their own history, he had always met people when and where and how he pleased. And the rulers were so enraged that they kill him. And about the same time, another man, Philip, he's the other chap in our story. Um, he, along with many others, fled the city after Stephen's death triggered this kind of wave of violence against the early Christians. He went to Samaria. Now, Samaria, the place of the Samaritans, uh, they're the enemies of the Jews. It's the furthest thing you could possibly imagine from a holy place. But he went there and he told them about Jesus, about God's rescuing servant king. And God displayed his power in, 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 through Philip in, in what went on there. What he said and what he did, there was a remarkable transforming effect on the whole city. We read that many of them believed in Jesus and the whole place was filled with joy. So with that joy ringing in your ears, jump back to the Ethiopian. Because he's come up to Jerusalem 
and he's now absolutely gutted. He is heartbroken. See, he'd come to the temple, he'd come to worship, he'd come longing to encounter God. When he gets to the temple, he discovers that Gentiles, foreigners like himself, are only allowed in the outer courts of the temple. You can't really go inside. Oh well, that'll have to do. But then there's worse. As he comes towards the temple, as he, as he comes to the outer courts, someone steps in his way. Perhaps it's one of the priests, the Levites. Maybe it's one of the temple guards. You can't come in. I've just come from... There's my bodyguard. They've just gone in. Just coming in to worship God. No, you can't come in. You're not whole. You're not complete. You're not what you should be. Back in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament um, laws that govern the way the temple operated and govern the worship... It says this, this is Deuteronomy 23. No one has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No eunuch can come into the temple. You're not good enough to come to God. You fall short of what God requires. I always try to explain that. I, I'm an... I'm a really important person. I, I'm, 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 I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, I've got great status back home. It doesn't matter. We're not interested in that. You fall short of what God requires of you. But I'm a good person. I've always used my gifts, my abilities for the good of others, to, to help my, my country thrive. And it doesn't matter. You fall short of what God requires of you. But you don't understand, it wasn't my fault. I can't help it. It doesn't matter. You've fallen short of what's required. And finally, in despair, the guy walks away. Perhaps he spends a few days uh, replenishing their supplies for the journey. Just like you might buy a book at the train station. Uh, he picks up a scroll. And... Uh, and he sets off on the long journey home. Scene change. Meanwhile, uh, Philip is still in Samaria. He's very busy. Everything is going well. There's great encouragement. There's huge success. And he gets this message from God. God says to him, leave this and go off to the desert. It seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Seems counterintuitive. Lord, I've got so much to do here. But he goes. There is a lesson here about obedience to God, even when it doesn't seem obvious to us. There's another lesson here about God's love. Philip has been reaching hundreds, perhaps thousands, in this city. But God is concerned about one, about an individual. So Philip does what he says. He's told he goes down to the desert road. The eunuch is in his chariot. Um, what else can he do? Um, well, he starts reading this scroll that he's bought. As he starts reading the prophet Isaiah, like I said, written 700 years before this. Um, it's really interesting. As he reads it, he finds in chapter 1 that the temple worship itself, 
that he longed to be a part of. The temple worship itself wasn't always acceptable to God. In fact, sometimes God says it stank. But God invites them to come and to talk to him, to wash away their faults. And if only, the Ethiopian groans to himself, God would invite me to come and wash my sins away. In chapter 2, he reads about all the nations of the world coming up to the temple so that he could teach them. And the Ethiopian just groans, because I tried that and it was a waste of time and they wouldn't let me in. He reads on to chapter 25, how the Lord would prepare a feast for all the people. He'd wipe away their tears. Well, if I was turned away at the temple, maybe it is for all nations, but it's not for people like me. And there's no way to wipe away his tears. I wonder, can you relate to the eunuch at all? Maybe you really want to know God. But you're aware that you've fallen short. You're aware that there are things in your past that leave you feeling guilty or ashamed. You feel dirty. Uh, you're left feeling incomplete. You feel you're not what you should be. You fall short of the standard. The Bible calls that sin. It's not so much the things that I do. They're the kind of the tip of the iceberg. It goes deeper. It's not so much what I do as, as the person I am. That something inside me isn't right. And all those inner voices that, that, that confirm to me that I'm, I don't belong. That I'm not good enough. That I would love to really encounter God, but I know that I'm not what I should be. I fall short of the standard. Maybe it is for all the nations, but it's not for people like me. If you've ever seen Jesus on TV or in the pictures or whatever, he always looks beautiful. He always looks flawless, doesn't he? You wonder, what has he got to do with me? In chapter 49 of Isaiah, the eunuch would have read about the servant of the Lord being formed in the womb to be the rescuer. We're coming to Christmas, we'll reflect on that. Uh, that the, the rescuer would restore God's people, but also he would be a light for the Gentiles. He would bring salvation to the ends of the world. For all the nations. Uh, but not for people like this eunuch. And as he reads on into chapter 52 and 53, it takes his breath away because he discovers that the servant of God, the rescuing king, appalled people. That he was so marred and disfigured, they couldn't bear to look at him. That he was despised, that he was rejected, that he's called a man of sorrows. He's full of sadness and he's familiar with suffering. And the eunuch thinks, well, I know what that feels like. Maybe that rescue and servant king is something for me. Because, like I said, you always see Jesus and he looks beautiful and flawless. But actually, you've... You're like me and you feel the kind of frailty of your own body, your own weakness. You feel marred and scarred. Maybe you feel despised or rejected. Perhaps you feel your life is full of sorrows. But the rescue and serving king is for people like us. It is for the, the suffering and grieving. It is for the, the, the mistreated and misshapen. It is for those um, who are abused and those who have abused. It is for the unloved and for the unlovely. He has come for the fallen down and, and those who have been let down. God has sent the king for people like you and me and this Ethiopian eunuch. 
And as the Ethiopian reads this, Philip arrives on the scene. The Bible calls him an evangelist, one who tells uh, evangel, good news. The book of Acts makes it clear that that's a job for all God's people. All Christians are called to be this evangelist, those who tell good news. He's a bit of an expert then, so perhaps we can pick up a few tips for him. First off, he goes to the unlikely. We already saw that when he went to Samaria. He doesn't ask himself who seems respectable, who seems religious, who seems responsive, who's most likely to listen to what I have to say. He doesn't think, well, there's no point speaking to them. There's no point dealing with him. I'm wasting my time on her. No, he speaks to the unlikely. The second thing to notice about him is he speaks boldly here. He hears the Ethiopian reading. Now, in those days, people usually read out loud. So he hears the Ethiopian reading these things, and he just dives in. Do you understand what you're reading? That's a pretty bold thing to, to say to someone. Do you know what you're on about? But he, he, he's bold. He risks being turned away. But he steps out in faith. He's not brash. He's not rude. But he is bold. But further, he gets specific. He begins where the guy is. He answers the questions he has. But he doesn't leave him where he is. Look, um, Philip began with the very passage of Scripture, the thing the man had asked him about. But he told him the good news about Jesus. Our good news is not about faith or religion or about going to church on Sunday or even about the Bible. Our good news is good news about Jesus. And if I think I've been sharing good news with people and I've not got as far as mentioning Jesus, then I've been sharing news. The good news is the good news about Jesus, about who he is and what he's done. And the eunuch's reading, and he's got this question, who is it about? Who is this rescuing servant king who knows what it's like to be despised, who knows what it's like to suffer? What happened to him? And so Philip explains, it's Jesus, God's own spotless son, that he's the rescuer. He's the light for all nations. He was brutally killed, and in doing so, he took the penalty for our wrong, for our sin, so that our guilt, our shame gets put on him, and we can be washed clean. He rose again from the grave. He proved that his work was finished, that evil and death don't get the last word, that, that his offering, his sacrifice, his work was complete. Wow, that sounds wonderful, says the eunuch. Sounds like just what I've been longing for. It's not for me. No, says Philip, it, it is for you. It's for all. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is for you. Yeah, but you don't understand, says the Ethiopian. I'm not the man I ought to be. I fall short of what God requires. I'm a foreigner, yes, but I'm a eunuch. And you can imagine, Philip, uh, taking the scroll from the Ethiopian and, 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 and rolling on a little bit further in the scroll, swiping a bit on his, his phone. If you've got your Bible there, if, if, if you've got Isaiah open, you turn on to chapter 56. You find, it says this, 
Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. In other words, I'm not fruitful. I can't produce anything. I'm not acceptable. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. To eunuchs and foreigners, God promises a legacy and a welcome. A place among his people. A place in his presence. Joy in prayer and cleansing and delight. I wonder if you've heard this this good news, this promise of, of peace with God, with forgiveness and being washed clean and a fresh start and peace with yourself and new life among God's people. And I wonder if you've ever heard it and thought, well, it, it, it's too good to be true. It must be for somebody else. It's only for those who've got it together, whose lives are all nice and neat. It's not for... For people like me, it's not for those of us who are on the outside looking in. It's not for those of us who, 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 who've suffered. It's not for those of us who've, who've, who've done wrong and been wronged. Friend, learn from the Ethiopian eunuch. Learn from the words of Jesus when he says, whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Never turn away. It is for you. It sounds too good to be true. I know, but it is true. You can almost see the tears rolling down the eunuch's face as he grasps it, can't you? They're, they're, they're traveling along. You see some water on the side of the road. Look, here's water. Why shouldn't they be baptized? You see, there are lots of reasons why he couldn't go to the temple. There are reasons why he couldn't become a Jew. Convert to Judaism. There are reasons why he's on the outside, but there's absolutely no reason at all that he shouldn't be baptized. He wanted to belong with God. He wanted to identify with his people. He wants to be washed clean. There is no barrier to him being baptized. Now be clear, baptism doesn't do any of those things. It doesn't wash away sin and guilt. It doesn't make you into one of God's people. It doesn't make you right with God. No, it doesn't do any of those things itself, but it's an outward sign of an inward work. It's a sign of being joined to Jesus in his death and resurrection. It's a sign of identifying with him and, and with his people. It's a sign of being washed clean. And the eunuch says, well, that's what Jesus has done for me on the inside. And so Philip puts the sign on the outside of him, takes him down into the water, and they stop the chariot, there's a pool or a stream or something, and Philip immerses him, puts him in the water. This Ethiopian is the first um, name, Gentile convert that we're told about as an individual. He's the first African Christian. We said before that the good news had to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the farthest parts of the world. Well, he is there, the farthest parts of the world. It's beginning. In this chapter, it's begun. He's the embodiment of it. We, we read that the Spirit then takes Peter away. Some miraculous event goes on after they come up out of the water and Philip vanishes. You might expect the Ethiopian to be a bit confused or a bit upset about that. But we are told he goes on his way rejoicing. Why? Because he'd met with God. 
He hadn't come to meet with Philip. He'd come to meet with God. He'd come to meet with God and found he wasn't enough. He'd fallen short of God's standard. But he discovered that Jesus Christ had died on the cross so that he could be forgiven, that he could be washed clean, that he could belong with the people of God, and that he could come into the presence of God. And he goes on his way rejoicing. Friend, would you, would you like that? To be able to leave here rejoicing because you knew you were right with God. You'd come to encounter them this morning and you went away having met him. How could you do that? Call him. Ask him. Want to talk to someone about this? Speak to me. Speak to one of the elders here. There'll be people who'd love to talk to you about that. Go on your way rejoicing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that you would uh, take it, uh, that it would work its way down deep into us and you would be pleased to use it. We pray it in the name of Jesus, through whom we ask. Amen.